Awaking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to Hacking Consciousness. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Thank you so much for tuning in and for your curiosity. Today, I have a great guest for you. John Horgan is a veteran science journalist, and he's the director of the Center for Science Writings at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. He writes the cross-check blog for Scientific American, and he has written such books as The End of Science, The Undiscovered Mind, The End of War, and Rational Mysticism. Rational Mysticism is a book that I read recently, and it's really the focus of our conversation today. John's interests certainly overlap with those of the podcast as well as his approach. He's very interested in exploring issues of consciousness through a very rational scientific approach. I feel that he's someone who certainly shares my healthy sense of skepticism in terms of really wanting to have a, you know, hard-nosed, rational, logical approach to things. But at the same time, I think we also share a healthy recognition of the limitations of scientific knowledge and the realization that the scientific Western approach is a particular set of assumptions and circumstances and methodologies, which in itself has its own limitations. And so we really dive deep into that on the show. We talk about how to understand consciousness through a rational approach. We talk about the potential of science to reveal certain truths about the nature of consciousness, as well as the limitations of that knowledge. We talk about what psychedelics can help us to understand about consciousness, as well as the limitations of working with psychedelics. And John, in the course of his book, which he talks about a bit, really interviewed some big names in spirituality, such as Houston Smith and Ken Wilber, as well as well-known names in the psychedelic sphere, such as Terrence McKenna, including some really respected researchers as well, neuroscientists who work in the area of neuroscience and mysticism, people like University of Pennsylvania professor Andrew Newberg. So this is the kind of quality research that John has in his book and that we unpack today on the show. And I thought John was just a really great guy. And frankly, I found his candor and his just honesty about what he felt that we can know and ultimately what we can't know and have to accept as as mystery as just very refreshing, particularly coming from someone who is a science writer. So I hope that you found our conversation as interesting as I did. Listening back to it, I really was very happy with the conversation and I hope you enjoyed as well. I'm going to include some links on how you can find John in the show notes as usual, but I really would recommend checking out John's work, in particular, Rational Mysticism. And he's also completing a new book on the mind-body problem, which will be coming out soon. So with that said, I give you my conversation with John Horgan. Well, I want to start by thanking you so much for making the time to speak with me. Um, because I really enjoyed your book and I want to have you on the podcast because as soon as I saw the title of the book, Rational Mysticism, I knew that it would be a perfect fit for the show and our audience. And so I'm so glad that you're available. Um, let's start off. I'm delighted, delighted to be here. Oh, thanks. Go ahead. Um, so let's just start off with you sharing a bit about your background with the audience. Sure. All right. Well, I guess it's important to know that uh, I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up in uh, – uh, I, I was born in 1953. Um, I was a teenager 
in uh, in the 1960s and started hearing about um, psychedelics and uh, meditation and these various ways of achieving altered states. I heard about this thing called enlightenment, which, as far as I understood it, was uh, the best possible way to be as a human being. It was a state of terminal bliss and, and wisdom and um, all your troubles would be taken care of if you could achieve that state. So uh, a lot of people in my generation were interested in uh, enlightenment and mysticism and and uh, went chasing after these ways of being in, in all sorts of ways. We, uh, we joined religious cults. Uh, we followed gurus. We started meditating, doing transcendental meditation, things like that. And uh, a lot of us took psychedelics. And that was, that was really my main way of um, trying to understand mysticism. And we also read lots of stuff. So I read um, Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley probably when I was 15 or 16 years old as a way of trying to understand what a psychedelic experience meant and you know timothy leary was out there and and uh, ram das um so i was really fascinated with mysticism but i also always had this interest in science and understanding the world through physics and biology and uh, i eventually made a career out of that i became a, um, a science journalist in uh, the early 80s, and I actually put a lot of my interest in um, in mysticism and spirituality sort of in a back corner of my mind. It didn't seem to have a lot to do with um, with science and rationality. But uh, then I wrote this book called The End of Science. Um, it came out in 1996, and it was my attempt to figure out how far science can go. How much can science figure out why we're here, what the purpose of life is, um, why the universe came into being in the first place, uh, how it is that uh, the universe could be, produce conscious beings like us. And the irony was that, you know, so for that book, I talked to a lot of uh, great scientists and, and philosophers and, and asked them about how far science and rationality could go. And some of them said that they thought there were real limits on what we could learn through empirical, rational means, and that to complement science, we might have to rely on uh, mysticism and spirituality and some of these other ways of knowing the world. And so that brought me back to um, mysticism, which I'd been so interested in as a, as a kid. And I wrote Rational Mysticism, to try to figure out for myself once and for all whether science and mysticism are in any way complementary um, and compatible with each other. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Well, I definitely want to get there. I was about to say, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, you know, to that question, but um, we'll, we'll get there eventually, I'm sure. Can you start out by sharing a little bit about so what was your approach to writing the book? Just for people who haven't had a chance to read it, you know, because you, you, you spoke to different people from different backgrounds. So if you can kind of lay that out for folks so they have an overview. Sure. Um, my style of journalism relies very heavily on my interviews with people that I think have really interesting things to say. So this is what I did in in uh, The End of Science, I did it in a follow-up book called The Undiscovered Mind, which is about all the sciences that attempt to explain us to ourselves. And I also did it with rational mysticism. So the people that I sought out uh, had both a scholarly, intellectual understanding of, of mysticism and spirituality, religious experiences, those sorts of things. And they also had a subjective personal experience. So to give you an example, um, one of the people that I interviewed at length was this guy named Ken Wilbur, who is this kind of new age mystical 
intellectual. He's a really smart guy. He seems to have read pretty much everything that there is to read on um, on how the mind works, from Freud and Jung right up to uh, the latest works of of neuroscience and cognitive science. But he also is a dedicated meditator, and um, he and he's also steeped in all the uh, the great mystical traditions, especially Buddhism and Hinduism, and so he can write about mysticism from the inside and the outside. Um, I did the same thing with uh, some psychedelic scholars. So one of my interviews was with this guy named Terence McKenna, uh, who is um, he's a he's a, well he he died uh, more than. 15 years ago, but uh, I interviewed him shortly before his death. He was a great scholar of psychedelics. He knew a lot about uh, the anthropology of uh, sacred substances and about the use of um, psychedelic uh, psychedelic sacraments historically, but he also was a, a psychedelic wild man who had taken a lot of drugs of all different kinds and had traveled the world in search of exotic psychedelic experiences. And again, he had this first person and third person view of the psychedelic experience. Uh, and I interviewed a bunch of other people um, of that kind, a subjective and objective knowledge of mysticism. Right, right. And that's, that's a great way of kind of closing to or underscoring that point is the subjective and the objective. I talk about that with people. I think it's so important that we do explore both because I think particularly with consciousness, you know, there's really no way of stepping outside of it. <laughs> so we do have to honor the subjective. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that um, it's taken me a weirdly long time to appreciate. I, I happen to be working on a book right now. I'm just finishing it up on uh, the mind-body problem. That's this kind of old-fashioned term for understanding the mystery of how a piece of meat, of matter, the brain, can generate consciousness, can generate perceptions and, and emotions and, uh, and decisions all the way up to the most sublime mystical experiences. How can a piece of matter that's essentially the same as as a coffee mug or, or a table um, create a mind capable of uh, of these sublime states? That's the uh, that's the mind body problem. It encompasses problems like consciousness and uh, and free will. Um, and I you know I used to think that there would be an answer. To the mind-body problem, uh, a kind in the same way that there there could be an answer to how life began or how the universe began or what is matter made of ultimately, um, and now I think that there can't be an answer uh, to that because the the question of consciousness, the question of mind, is different than any every other scientific problem. I don't think we can have a single objectively true theory of the mind, which would also be a single objectively true theory of what it means to be a human being. I, I think our answers to that question will always have to be in some fundamental way subjective. Each of us has to answer that question on our own. At least that's the premise of this book that I'm working on now. Funny you brought it up because one of my last closing questions for you was I really wanted to ask your view on consciousness and if you thought it was simply an epiphenomenon of the brain or not. I, I'm curious if you, since you've already sort of given your answer, if you're familiar with, um, and first of all, I can certainly sympathize with that. I think it's totally possible that it might. I don't know what to make of it. Um, we can get into this when we talk about ayahuasca. Um which I really enjoyed that chapter that you wrote. And I had a recent experience. And like you, I'm a very, even though my background's not in science, it's more in the humanities. I'm a very rational, you know, scientific person in my approach. Mm -hmm. And so I'm cautious how I interpret these experiences. But it, it certainly 
opened me up to sort of what I didn't, how much I didn't know. And it opened me up to the idea that who knows what consciousness is and totally possible that consciousness could be something that could just be way beyond the brain. You know, not that the brain isn't a part of it, but curious if you had a subjective experience that tuned you into that, like on ayahuasca or any. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, you know, so I, I had, I think every acid head and, and, you know, I was, I was definitely an acid head going back to when I was a teenager, I first tripped when I was 15 years old and I, and I, I've tripped a lot, um, since then. And, and, uh, every person who's in, into psychedelics in a pretty serious way dreams of the big trip that finally takes you through the, the veil of illusion and lets you see what's really going on. Um, and I finally had a trip like that in 1981. And I, I, I took this stuff. I still don't know exactly what it was. It was like some, it was much stronger than any other uh, psychedelic I've ever taken. It's like a supercharged LSD. It knocked me out for almost 24 hours straight. And I was in a, was it LSD like or was and, it like well, LSD? You're not sure. What this it was. is going to this is going to sound like a real bullshit hippie story, but it was actually a drug that a friend of mine obtained from a chemist who was working under contract for the army on um, brainwashing and disabling uh, agents. Uh, and uh, a, a friend of mine who's an expert on psychedelics at Harvard. Uh, thinks it might be something similar to BZ, which was a, a super psychedelic developed by the U.S. military as a, um, as a disabling agent, as a kind of chemical warfare that just drives people crazy. But whatever this stuff was, it just <laughs> blew me away. Uh, I've described it. I, I describe it in rational mysticism. I also alluded to it in my first book, The End of Science. I, I, I was sort of deliberately vague about the details. But the, what happened to me was just this, I was plunged into this kind of mythological world. I had all these different hallucinations. It, it, it took me months to try to remember them and unravel them and figure out what they meant. Um, and, and, I, you know, I, and I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still uh, writing about it in certain ways. I, I not only felt that I encountered God. I thought I became God. I, and, and it was a, at first it was really great. And then it was really terrible. Uh, and I also had all these other, um, visions that were sort of laden with metaphorical and mythological significance. And if I, if I look at it really skeptically, so part of me wonders whether this, this means that Jung is right and that our, our little individual psyches are connected in some way to, to a, a collective unconscious that is filled with all these archetypal images. That's really what it felt like. Uh, but at the very least, what it suggests to me, and I still believe this, is that we all have capacities for imagination that we have barely tapped. Because I, these experiences, I, I have no idea where they came from. I can't pin them to any kind of knowledge that I had prior to this. They were just totally startling. And, you know, they, they made me feel the same way that um, William James felt after, after uh, by the end of his writing, A Varieties of Religious Experience, where he says, you know, it's hard to know what to make of these visions of God and, and the abyss and all these wild experiences that people have had where they, they're encountering ultimate reality. But the very least they mean that we, we can't have a premature closing of our accounts of reality. It's wilder than, than we can imagine. And I, I still feel that way. So it's not like I got answers. It's more that I have this kind of open-mindedness to things. I've got like a, you know, I've got sort of my worldview, but there's a gigantic hole in it. 
and I can peer out that hole and see all kinds of stuff going on that I can't even begin to explain. Yeah, I think that's more of the value of psychedelics. It seems like to me, whether it's the experience of your ego shattering or your heart opening or whatever it is, it's almost like it just it's such a powerful experience that it leaves an impression on you rather than the actual knowledge. Now, of course, there are those examples. I mean, you know, Francis Crick getting an insight into the double helix nature of the DNA and <laughs> undoubtedly yeah. many other people in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's a big, that's a big insight. But, um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it's, it's not like that you get the secret, right? That it just shows you the secret. It's, it's this powerful experience that can be transformative but one interesting thing that I experienced underscores you had is, and this is the tricky thing about psychedelics. And I just had a psychiatrist on and we were talking about this with ayahuasca. We were saying it can be so powerful as this um, ego shattering experience. But for some people, and you sort of allude to this where you said it made me feel like God, it can be ego inflating. And that's very interesting, and I still have totally missing on what is the, sort of the cause of that. Do you have any thoughts on why for some people it can, or certain instances, it can inflate your ego rather than shrink it? Yeah, um, I think this is true of all the spiritual paths. It's one of the real paradoxes of these very deep mystical experiences the way I, I sometimes think of it is that you know we have these egos which are like these little um it's a little it's like a i think of it sometimes as a bag that contains ourselves and separates us from the rest of the world and we can have these experiences that just shatter that membrane that separates us from other things and you can think of it in, in uh, two ways. One is that your, you know, your little self just uh, flies apart and you lose it and you become part of this, this greater cosmic whole. Um, but, and that, that means your ego is obliterated and that's how you feel the oneness. But some people seem to experience it as the boundary of their, their, the self expanding to infinity. So they, they become like these monster narcissists and they think that they, they are God or they are God-like and that they are worthy of being worshipped by other people. You know, this is the irony of a lot of uh, spiritual paths is that they're supposed to they're, they're supposed to help you see how um, how small you are in comparison to the great overmind, but in some cases they lead to this really extreme and malignant narcissism, and I think that manifests itself in the behavior of uh, lots of bad gurus who end up taking advantage of their um, devotees and uh, – uh, you know, steal from them and uh, and have sex with them, whether or not they really uh, want that, and behave in all these just terrible ways. And I don't think it's because they're total frauds and they're just sociopaths or using the spirituality racket as a way to get control of other people. I think some of them have very deep mystical experiences, and their pathology is is related to that. Here's another way I think of, of to explain the bad behavior of some really deeply spiritual people. And this comes from my own um, understanding of mystical experiences. So one thing that mysticism has done for me is it, it, it makes me feel as though I, I can see life in the context of infinity and eternity. A, a metaphor for this could be, you know, you're on a rocket ship and uh, you go into outer space and then you look back at the Earth and you see how tiny it is compared to the deep infinite space 
around us. And you can have, again, two reactions to that. One is you can think, oh my God, how precious life is. And you just wanna be grateful for every second that you have uh, of life. And you, and you realize that other people are infinitely precious and you're grateful to have um, the experience of sharing life with them. And uh, you, you, know, you, have, you have reverence for every single living thing. The opposite reaction to seeing infinity is you don't give a shit about anything. If, if uh, our lives are against this backdrop of eternity, infinity, what difference does a little bit of suffering make? What difference does one individual life make? It's just infinitesimal, it doesn't matter at all. So, so these experiences can lead you to be this kind of holy person filled with gratitude and reverence for life, or it can lead you to be a total, cruel, sadistic nihilist who doesn't give a shit about anything. Right. Yeah, ultimately we construct the meaning, right? Yeah. That is so true. Yeah. That is so true. I want to um, I want to bring us back a bit to coming back to your approach, and you sort of you already kind of went through some of your different guests and why you had them on. You know, these are people who I'm sure some of the listeners would be familiar with. Very well known people. You mentioned Ken Wilber, Ten- Terrence McKenna, also Stan Groff, Houston Smith. Yes. And mm-hmm. so these were really amazing figures, like huge leaders in the field of not only psychedelics but spirituality i'm really curious to hear which arguments or people you found most compelling and which ones were least and why yeah um that's a tough one uh i i had really mixed feelings ambivalence about almost Everybody I met, I, I reacted to my subjects both on an intellectual and emotional level. So Ken Wilber, for example, he was a fascinating figure. I spent, uh, I don't know, four or five hours hanging out with him in his uh, beautiful house in uh, Boulder, Colorado, overlooking the flatlands. And he's a really smart guy, a, a real intellectual and it was it was fun to talk to him about his view of spirituality, and um, and he constructs he has constructed this really elaborate uh, system, almost uh, like a periodic table of uh, states of being, to um, to try to bring together Western and Eastern ways of knowing, and this is informed by his own deep mystical knowledge has come through. Um, meditation and he makes it clear he's enlightened ken wilbur claims to be enlightened he claimed this in his book uh one taste and so you know he's got lots of interesting things to say about what it's like to be enlightened and i sort of feel like he in a way he's captured and sort of defined mysticism as well as any anybody but he also kind of totally missed the point uh, be, for me, you know, going back to what I said earlier about about how my own experiences have kind of shattered my certainty, any feeling that I really know what's going on, um, and left me in this state of radical doubt. The problem I had with Ken Wilber is that he's a big know-it-all. He really thinks he gets everything, and he knows what existence is uh, is about. Now, in contrast to him. And so even though I, I had great respect for Wilbur intellectually, like I said, I had this sort of, I had this, um, I kind of disapproved of him in a way, too, as opposed to Terrence McKenna, who in some ways was really irresponsible as, a, uh, as an intellectual. Uh, he was one of the people who was responsible for this idea that the world is going to end in some way in 2012. He really pushed that hard. Uh, he t- loved, liked to talk about the, you know, the, the chattering machine elves that you encounter in the DMT hyperspace. You know, he was into like supernatural phenomena. Um, and the, the problem was a lot of his, the people who read him and listened to his talks took all that seriously. 
But what McKenna was really doing was just goofing on people. He was like a performance artist. He was like a, like a, a clown, this kind of you know, psychedelic clown who's trying to get us to realize that all our beliefs, all these ideas that we have about what's really going on are ridiculously insufficient for really capturing the wildness of uh, existence. So with McKenna, I felt like in spite of the, the sort of irresponsible side of him, that he got it. I, you know, I, I completely um, identified with his, this wild, jokey, absurd, psychedelic vision that, that he had of, uh, of existence. Yeah, I know what you're saying totally about Terrence McKenna. I mean, I actually hadn't listened to a lot of them until recently. Someone who's a fan of his sent me one of his talks, and I really liked it. It was interesting. Um, but, and I think you said this. He's, you know, he's more of a poet, you know, and, and when you take him in that form, and he actually said this openly in the talk, he goes, and of course, I'm all about propaganda. My life's about propaganda. So he was open right. about it, you know, and that's kind of what made it redeeming. And there's, he had a charisma and he is, uh, he is likable, but yeah, he's, he, there's, he's definitely a sharp contrast to his brother, Dennis. I mean, I like Terrence a lot. I think I really, I really like Dennis because he also has that very sort of scientific you know, more serious intellectual. So yeah, yeah. Dennis is a little more down to earth. Um, yeah, Terrence. Terrence was always kind of performing uh, when I met right. him. Um, I, I felt like he was he was always trying to sort of dazzle me, and I, I like it. But sometimes it was a little exhausting. But I, but I, let me say something about you know you're you're asking about the I'm, I'm trying to convey this this contrast in styles. And this comes down to a really important issue uh, raised by trying to understand mystical states and you know trying to understand reality ultimately. Uh, there's this field of theology, and I wrote about this in, in Rational Mysticism as well, called negative theology. Uh, it, and it, it's this attempt to understand you know ultimate reality and and God. Um, that begins with the premise that it cannot be understood. And, and, and so you say, God is beyond all comprehension. All right, now let's try to understand God. Um, and so, you know, there's this paradox built into um, the whole endeavor from the beginning. And I think if you acknowledge that language is inadequate to, to explain and describe these ultimate things and you realize that that scientific language and kind of uh, you know dry philosophical language is inadequate and that poetry and the arts uh, you know the the our ways of knowing the world that are um, sort of ironic to begin with you're saying this is the way things are but not really uh, that that is more appropriate for uh, understanding mysticism than, uh, than the straight up rational disciplines. Um, and that's why I think some of the greatest, you know, the greatest uh, poets um, were much better um, at expressing what a mystical experience is like than somebody like Ken Wilber, who's really trying to be rational about it. I think it's one reason why William James was so, was so, um, was so wonderful as a writer about mysticism because he had the gift of poetry. Uh, you know, he was, he really had great powers of expression and there's this kind of emotional content in his writing in the varieties, in the varieties of religious experience that very few people um, can, uh, can achieve. So that's sparking a couple of, of big thoughts I'd love to share with you and get your reaction. One, the first thing you said about negative theology, it, it sounds a bit like what I'm familiar with from the tradition of the Upanishads, if you're familiar with this idea of neti neti, where, you know, they would just be like, not this, not this. 
And it was their way of sort of you get at an arrival of what is true through negation, you know, and I know there's a tradition of that in Judaism as well. And um, and that's why that's it. That's it. Right. that that's it. And then what sprung up later on was was Tantra. And that's why you have all this deep. You have, um, well, the, the use of mantras really go back to the Vedas, but also the, the visualizations right on the deity and these really insanely psychedelic um, <laughs> pieces of art, because it was recognizing that to enter into a state is really it's not something you can do through the logical mind. I've been talking a little bit about recently how I've come to understand meditation as a kind of design experience. All you can do is you can sort of arrange these sort of set of conditions that hopefully will, whether it's meditating on a mantra or a deity or a yantra, a geometric form, and that will allow this sort of powerful state of samadhi to arise. But it can't be you know, it can't be forced. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe we could talk a little bit about enlightenment and what that is. I have this, um, an old friend of mine just wrote a book that you might've heard of called why Buddhism is true. Oh my God. Uh, Robert Wright, you're friends with him. Yeah. I've known him. He married a childhood friend of mine. So I've known him. Oh, his work's great. Yeah, he's he's a brilliant guy, and our interests overlap a lot. Um, but we have, you know, we have some pretty serious differences. And one is that I think Bob actually believes in enlightenment as this kind of ultimate state of of serenity and wisdom. And I used to believe in enlightenment in that sense, and I don't anymore. I don't think there is any op- optimal way of being a human being. I think where there are these experiences that we just go through and everyone is just a bridge to more experiences. I think this is true of us as individuals. And I think if it's, it's true of us as a species, there, there is not a terminal state of being human for us as individuals or uh, for us collectively there's no there's no utopia in the same way that there's no enlightenment and i think the idea that there is a terminal state you know this optimal state of of existence is actually a really bad idea and it's led to a lot of abuses i think this is this is one of the reasons why um there have been so many abusive uh, gurus and there, there are all these terrible things that have happened in the spirituality racket since I was um, a kid. If you believe that there is this thing called enlightenment and that you know this particular person can help you get there, um, that you become desperate and you become somebody who's really vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Uh, so I just think it's an idea that that um, we're better off rejecting at this point. It's not to say that we can't have these really profound experiences that can be transformative, but don't see them as as end states. Always just see them as transitions to something else. It's funny you mention this because I've just started studying a bit with a teacher, brilliant guy, um, scholar of Indian religions. I'm actually going to India with him in December. His name's Douglas Brooks. And his style is what he calls Rajanaka Yoga. It is an oral tradition from South India that was handed to him by his teacher. He lived in India for 10 years. And it's a fundamental critique of what he points out, which is a great point, um, is this fundamental paradigm really within Indian philosophical and religious thought going back to Buddhism and the in the Upanishads where it's this model of bondage liberation right we're bound mm. and somehow we have to break through we have to be you know liberated and there's this there's this singularity right this unbroken singularity to which we can return and 
there's this final state that we can realize and it's a fundamental rejection of that and when i studied with him and he kind of pointed that out i was i just realized the extent to which that really pervades all indian thought and it does seem to be an ideal i mean when you talk to the dalai lama for example that's a guy who looks as close to enlightened as one would think from my perspective, but he's quite open and down to earth about all these things. I mean, talk about a guy Mm -hmm. in contrast to Ken Wilbur, you're saying all these very spiritual people say they don't know. I mean, the Dalai Lama is all about, no, I'm not a, of course I'm not a God. You know, I, I don't know so much. I mean, he'll be honest that he still gets angry or upset. And so if somebody like that still experiences that, you know, I, I also read Gandhi's autobiography and he said the same thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, if Gandhi um, doesn't get it, I mean, who's there? Right. I, you know, I think to be human means to always be a work in progress. And I, you know, and also to be human means to yearn for some kind of liberation or ultimate state where you escape the human condition and everything is okay. I understand why people yearn for that. I have certainly yearned for it for much of my life. And now I just think it's, it's an idea that um, does more harm than good and that it's more liberating for me now to accept that I am this this flawed mortal creature, um, and uh, you know I always ha- as much as I learn, I always have infinitely more to learn uh, ahead of me, and I certainly will never know nothing. You know, another thing that bothers me about some of the um, the Eastern mystical traditions. Uh, let's just go with Buddhism. Um, you know, I have this love-hate relationship with Buddhism going way back. One of my problems, and I tried to come to terms with this when I wrote Rational Mysticism, is that Buddha was married and had a child when he set out to find enlightenment and to liberate himself from um, from human suffering and to come up with some way for others to liberate themselves as well. And, uh, and Buddhism still enshrines this idea that the ultimate form of life is to be a celibate monk yes, and to, and to cut yeah. yourself off from, you know, from love and sex and being a parent and, you know, all the messy biological realities of being human. And to me, that's not spirituality. That's almost the opposite of spirituality. Spirituality should be helping us come to terms with our humanity instead of denying it and achieving some kind of detachment from it. And, um, you know, so I, at the end of rational mysticism, I, I decided that if mysticism means reaching some kind of exalted state where you are, you know, floating way above the earth, and looking down on it with contentment and detachment. That's not what I want anymore. I want to be right here in the middle of people who just like me are struggling to, to be good and to, to have meaningful lives. Totally. I mean, it is once again, talk about a, a paradigm that pervades Indian religious thought. You know, these renunciatory traditions are something that not only Buddhism, it really is all these different sects. And there are, I've come to learn, there are householder schools as well. And particularly when you get the rise of Tantra, um, you do get householder schools. And now I study in a householder tradition for precisely this well, reason. It's sort of speaking to that. Um, but what I, is, I'm not familiar with that term, householder tradition. Yeah, yeah. So within Indian thought, most of these schools, whether it was Shankaracharya in Advaita Vedanta or whether it's Buddhism or Jainism, um, it, most of these are renunciatory schools, right? You're renouncing the world in order to find enlightenment. But 
You also have schools of thought within Indian religion that argue for the householder path because they recognize that for most people, they're not able to renounce the world. They've got kids. And so how do those people find enlightenment or awakening or whatever you want to call it in your day-to-day life? And an example of that, um, before Tantra, it even goes back. You could say the first big seminal text that really does that is the Bhagavad Gita, right? That's mm-hmm. what Krishna is speaking to is, you know, how how do we through action in the world, you know, Arjuna is a warrior. Arjuna wants to walk away and Krishna says, no, this is your Dharma. You know, right. you have to live this out. And so the Gita does that. Um, later, Tantric texts will do that. And tantric schools or householder schools. And so, uh, once again, Douglas, one of my teachers, Douglas Brooks, likes to say, you know, tantra is about checking in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about checking out and going out to the mountaintop. It's about checking in. It's a life-affirming philosophy. And so there are those schools out there. But that's not the message we get. And um, from, from so much of what's available, and I know what you're saying because... For one, I live in Thailand, so I see that model of what it means to be enlightenment just sort of on display in front of me all the time. And it's also relevant because there are people who are studying these practices in the West who are studying from a teacher in a school that's fundamentally renunciatory, but they don't know it. Right. Yeah. Right. So they're learning practices and techniques and hearing messages that might in some sense, even if it's not obvious, be fundamentally not really aligned with how they're trying to live their lives and lacking the, the historical and cultural context, like with any piece of knowledge, uh, deprives you of some key framework, right. For understanding what's going on. Yeah. I, you know, so that, that, um, I guess, I guess then I am definitely a householder, uh, type seeker. Um, but even those traditions, the way you're describing them, I, my guess is that they still think there is this state called enlightenment that you can achieve. Most and that do. That's the, yeah. yeah. Most that do. That's Douglas argues, Douglas's branch argues no, but yeah, most of them do still posit that sort of unbroken singularity to which we're all returning. Yeah. Right. And that, that's, that's the idea that, uh, Listen, I, you know, everybody eats to their own, but uh, I've decided that that is not for me. And if people care about what I think, I tell them I that uh, on balance, after watching the spiritual scene for decades now, I, I think it's 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 not a good idea. Uh, in the same way that the idea of utopia inspired a lot of the most horrific. Um, bloodshed in human history, especially in the 20th century. Uh, you know, the, the communists and the, the, and the fascists were, had utopian visions. And that justifies, that, that, that goal is so sublime that it justifies any action. Um, that's destructive. And I think enlightenment is sort of the personal, uh, it's the personal uh, version of that. Well, that's a perfect segue for what I want to talk about next, because you'd mentioned Robert Wright, who spoke recently to Sam Harris. I'm not f- sure if you're familiar with Sam Harris. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah big new atheist critic. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple things made me think of Sam other than than Robert. One was you talked about you weren't so sure about just this enlightenment, rational criticism of of religion that it's kind of missing something that religion is more to this and mm-hmm. i've been listening to a couple of people who have pointed this out um and one of the biggest ones and really kind of mind-blowing people who made the argument uh was jordan peterson i'm not sure if you're familiar with him i'm not okay he's very popular among a lot of people he um especially there's some overlap with the sam harris crowd and jordan peterson's but Jordan Peterson is a professor at University of Toronto. He's made some headlines for being very against political correctness and for free speech on campus. But his 
main thing is he's a psychologist who's done a lot of interesting talks on psychology of religion. And this is his critique of Sam Harris and Dawkins is these guys are fundamentally just making a very narrow critique because it's it's all about rationality and they're just so firmly rooted in the enlightenment. But that's actually a relatively recent view and it's a pretty narrow one. And he goes way back. He's he's influenced not only by his Jung and Nietzsche, but he goes way back and he sort of talks about, you know, Darwinism and brings in evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. And he's just talks about the evolution of religious thought as you have to come to understand it in a kind of archetypal symbolic sense. And it's an argument worth checking out. But I was I wanted to kind of expand on that a, a little bit because I've been. I liked what the new atheists had to say. I agreed with a lot of their criticisms and I still do to some extent, but I'm coming to see kind of that it does miss the point a little bit about religion. And in fact, it's too narrow in the sense that I don't think it's just religion is the problem. It's like you just said, it's ideology is the problem, right? I mean, it it doesn't matter if it's religion or communism or capitalism or anything else it it has to do with ideology and also looking within like the source of the what is it within us that has this fundamental aggressive need to assert our view on others and so i'd love to kind of get your take on that and and just hear a little bit more about your thoughts on sort of the the limitations of that rationalist critique of organized religion. So here's here's one way that uh, that uh, I look at it. I, I, I've been sort of tending toward a kind of radical postmodernism lately. In other words, the idea that um, you know when you that truth should always have scare quotes around it knowledge should always have scare quotes around it i'm not a postmodernist in general i think that science figures a lot of things out uh you know like uh, our, our theory of matter quantum mechanics relativity these are extraordinarily powerful and in some sense i think true theories the theory of evolution by natural selection when it comes to understanding ourselves though our knowledge is pathetically inadequate um, here's let me give you one example of that. Uh, one of my favorite neuroscientists is a guy named Christoph Koch, who um, was at Caltech for a long time. He was a close uh, uh, ally of Francis Crick. He, the two of them helped to make consciousness a serious topic for science back in uh, the 1990s, and you know, very hardcore materialist approach to understanding the mind and uh, consciousness. Crick over the last 10 years has put his considerable weight behind a theory called integrated information theory, uh, which says that consciousness arises from any system in which you have different parts that are exchanging bits of information. A single proton consists of three quarks that are exchanging information, so a single proton is conscious according to this theory. That means that panpsychism, this ancient mystical doctrine that says the entire universe, all things in it um, are conscious, panpsychism is true. So it's this sort of flaky new age concept that suddenly is right at the center of science uh, trying to understand consciousness these days. This has just happened uh, very recently. Some of the most prominent philosophers are behind this, uh, this same idea, integrated information theory, and a lot of very sophisticated people now think that panpsychism is true. What this tells me is that we're just clueless. People are grasping at straws. I mean, maybe the theory is true, but we have no way of knowing. Actually, our, our the one problem is that we, we, we can't verify that, I mean, like this coffee mug in front of me 
is uh, is conscious or our smartphone is conscious, let alone a, a proton or or dark energy. That at a workshop on this theory that I I went to a, um, a year ago, there was actually a debate over whether dark energy could be uh, could be conscious. So my conclusion is that we don't have any idea what mind is, what causes mind, how you get mind out of matter, and um, that means that that the 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 positive side of this is that we should have enormous freedom to imagine answers. And almost anything goes. I think theories that invoke God, that invoke a creator, why the hell not? Some of these theories, they don't appeal to me much. Uh, theories that, that involve God bring up questions about you know why God would create this particular universe. They bring up the problem of evil. Why you? Why our life is so extraordinarily painful and unfair? If it was, if we were created by uh, by a God who uh, loves us, but I think we can choose ideas about existence and about ourselves that appeal to us for aesthetic reasons because they feel right to us because they're meaningful to us and. What Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the other, I mean, I know, you know, Dawkins I've met many times and Dan Dennett, people like that. They suffer, I think, from a lack of imagination and from a refusal to acknowledge how pathetically inadequate science is, just straight up science for understanding the human condition. And therefore, they insist just on the most straightforward materialistic explanations. Um, and they want to shut everything else, else out. And I think that leads to a really cramped, uh, inadequate vision of, of existence. So I say, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let people believe what they want to believe as long as the theories just aren't flat out destructive and don't violently contradict what science tells us. Yeah, I, I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. Uh, you know, I will say I've read a lot of the New Atheists and, uh, you know, Dawkins never really resonated for me that much. Hitchens is a good writer. You know, Sam Harris is the only one I ever really liked. And I do like Sam and I like him, you know, on a number of topics for not just religion. But um when I, I have come to view it as kind of like, you know, it's sort of like when if you love reading, and I identify with this, I'm this way, right? I, I love history. I want to understand how the world works. So it's like I read nonfiction all the time. It's like nonfiction's mm -hmm. great. Knowledge is great. But it's like sometimes you got to read a novel. <laughs> you know, it's like you need some imagination. And I, I, I feel that that, we in um, in Indian philosophy, you call it like rasa, like it's like the juice, like the flavor. It when when something has when it's only prose and no poetry, it has no rasa, you know. And yeah. that's what's missing. And I sometimes feel a little bit also like Sam and some of those other guys. They they really can't empathize with the fact that most people aren't that rational. You know, most people just don't want to view the world through an only logical lens. I was listening to Daniel Kahneman talk recently that, you know, I'm sure you know him, the Nobel Prize winner, Thinking Fast and Slow. And yes. his whole thing, which he won the Nobel Prize for, is just showing how really we're not rational. You know, we really make decisions based on emotions, then use our minds and our intellect to justify it. And one interesting thing Kahneman said on this topic of consciousness was, it was funny, I heard him talking about this the other day. He goes, for the life of me, you know, I know that everyone is talking about AI and consciousness. Will AI be conscious? And he goes, for the life of me, I cannot get myself to be excited about this topic because my response is, even if it's true, how will you know? And right. it sort of raises the same question for this. Like, even if we totally map the human brain, you understand what consciousness is, 
how is that conceptual knowledge fundamentally going to change your subjective experience of having to navigate consciousness? Yeah, I, you know, so you've just what what Kahneman is alluding to there is something called the solipsism problem. It's it's this old idea in philosophy that uh, I mean, Descartes talked about it. Lots of people have talked about it. That one of the one of the dilemmas of being human is that each of us is trapped inside this her hermetically sealed chamber of our own conscious experience. I know I'm conscious. I'm experiencing that right now. I I am guessing you are conscious too, but I can't be absolutely sure. I don't have direct access to your conscious experience the way I have direct access to uh, the physical world around me. So what that means is that that when we speculate about whether computers are conscious or whether uh, a chimpanzee or or a jellyfish or a bacterium is conscious, it's just guesswork. We don't really know. So all our theories of consciousness bump up uh, against this problem, and uh, it just comes down to guesswork, and it also comes down to um, it comes down to personal subjective aesthetic choices. Now, our most powerful way of overcoming the solipsism problem, this, you know, this chasm that lies between all of us is, I think, through art and, you know, through these ways that we have of describing the world, of knowing the world, interacting with the world that uh, are not strictly scientific and rational and and don't just use this kind of pared down, supposedly really uh, precise language. A novel like Ulysses by James Joyce helps you really understand what it is like to be an Irish ad salesman running around the streets of Dublin in the early 20th century worrying about your wife possibly screwing some other guy back home. So that's a way of breaking down the boundaries that lie between us and helping us share each other's experiences that science just isn't capable of. So I think we need, this is why, this is another problem that I have with certain kinds of uh, atheists and the hardcore uh, scientists is that they, they sort of say that si- there's only this one way really to know what's going on. And it's this empirical, rational method that we call science. And that's just grossly false. It's just not true at all. We have these other ways that are actually much more powerful uh, of sharing our experiences of the world and overcoming this thing called the solipsism problem. Well, I want to say how refreshing it is to hear that from a science writer, John, and this is very timely since I'm coming to similar conclusions myself. And, um, and I hope it resonates for our audience too. And I think one valuable thing that I can take from Buddhism is just this idea of the middle path. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius talked about this as well, sort of the golden mean, you know, it's just moderation. And, I think that there is, you and I can both agree that uh, dogma can be a problem. And if someone is trying to say creationism should be taught in schools along with evolution as equally legitimate theories, then we absolutely need to push back on that, you know, but Mm -hmm. there's science is wonderful, but there, it can lead to a form of, of dogma and tyranny of its own. And we just have to celebrate the fact that there's a multiplicity of legitimate ways of viewing the world. And part of that is also not only about logic, and that doesn't mean we descend into superstition, right? But it's this role of art and the importance of aesthetics. And it's the marriage of science and the humanities, which is so important. Um, Absolutely. To integrate yeah. those two ways of thinking. Yep. And there's no end point 
it's we need to explore the human condition forever. Well, ironically, I think that could be a good end point for this conversation, but I totally agree <laughs> with you. There is no end point, you know, and we've just got to accept that fact. John, I want to thank you so much for your time, and I want to give you an opportunity to share your contact and your social media information with our viewers, and if you have any upcoming books or events you'd like to plug. Sure. Well, um, I have a blog for Scientific American. It's called Crosscheck. And uh, I'm spouting about all kinds of things uh, there. Um, I, I post pretty much once a week. And uh, I write about uh, mysticism and spirituality and neuroscience and physics. I write about all the things which I'm interested in, which includes pretty much everything related to science and philosophy and, uh, and spirituality. So if people are interested in hearing more of what I have to say, they can – they can check that out. And uh, as I, I mentioned earlier in this uh, conversation, I am just finishing up a, a book on the mind-body problem. Um, my working title is Who We Really Are. And uh, it's going to um, flesh out a lot of the ideas that we have been talking about over the last hour. Wonderful. We'll, we'll be sure to include those in the show links. And thank you again for your time, John. This was a fascinating conversation and really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Okay. Take care. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking consciousness. 